Welcome back to the channel. The inaptly named Inflation Reduction Act just passed the House and the Senate and has been sent over to the White House for Biden's signature. By the time you're seeing this, in fact, he may have already signed it. There are many things that we could talk about from the Inflation Reduction Act. However, what I want to discuss with you today is the 87,000 new IRS employees that are funded by that act. The Dr. Reality Vodcast with Dave Champion. Let's start with this. All over social media, we see that this act has funded 87,000 new IRS agents. And that's not factual. It has funded the hiring of 87,000 new IRS employees, not all of whom will be agents. That said, it hardly matters because all 87,000 new IRS employees, of which some will be agents, are going to be tasked with getting as much of your money as possible. Before I get rolling in earnest, you should know that I have studied the IRS and income tax laws for decades now, and I'm the author of Income Tax Shattering the Myths. The point being, I have some expertise in this subject matter. Stick with me because in just a moment, I'm going to drop some bombs on you, some knowledge bombs on you that are going to help you avoid what those 87,000 new IRS employees are going to do to the American public. We know that these new IRS employees are not going to perform examinations, what the public calls audits. They're actually called examinations within the Internal Revenue Service. They're not going to perform examinations on billionaires or even wealthy people who are not billionaires. The reason is there's absolutely no mileage in doing so because those kind of people can afford top-flight attorneys who will tie up the IRS administratively and or judicially for years, and it's not worth the IRS's time to do that, provided they're getting a bit of money from the billionaires. And remember, the examiners at the IRS, I don't mean this to be pejorative, it simply is what it is, the IRS examiners are just government functionaries. Um, the highest paid of them, based on seniority, the very highest in the entire IRS is one person who makes, they're not specific about this pay, but somewhere between $92,000 and $96,000 a year. Everybody else makes less. So you can imagine suddenly you've got, say, four or five or six of these guys working on auditing a billionaire. you got guys that are making $50,000, $70,000. A couple might be making $80,000 a year. And they're going after billionaires who are hiring fleets of attorneys who are making a half a million dollars a year. Yeah, the IRS is going nowhere with that. Will the IRS be going after low-income earners, people who owe very, very little to the government, based on the establishment narrative, or nothing at all? Absolutely not. Again, there's no mileage for the Internal Revenue Service in, in that. In fact, the Internal Revenue Service actually has a policy that if there's no expectation of getting sufficient additional taxes owed that will cover the time of the examiner and the people in the collection division that will come afterwards to collect the money, if there's not enough there to offset the expense of the examiners and the collection, they don't go after that person. So no, they're not going after people who have low income. Who then will these 87,000 employees be going after? Who's left? We're not doing the poor and we're not doing the wealth. Yeah, people like you who are earning a decent living. Perhaps I can help you a bit with that by dropping some facts on you. 
As a side note, if you want to look up for yourself any of the statutes or the regulations I'm about to mention today, the language is straight out of Cornell Law's website, which can be found at law.cornell.edu. All right, so let's get down to business now. First, definitions are absolutely pivotal in tax law. It would be hard to overestimate how crucial definitions are in tax law. Did you know that the Supreme Court has approved, has sanctioned in its rulings, the congressional practice of taking a word, which in plain speech we all know the meaning of, and redefining that word when used in a statute. So you read through the statute or the regulation, and I know what that word means. But unless you go 75 pages further on or further back and find out that Congress has actually given that word a whole different meaning than what's in the English dictionary, you wouldn't know that the impression you're getting as you read the statute of the regulation is false. It is inaccurate. And that's a huge tool that Congress uses in tax law. And the Supreme Court has said, yeah, that's fine. Second, one of the primary mechanisms that Congress uses to ensure that you don't understand what a statute or regulation means is to employ what a statutory rule of construction called a term of expansion. A term of expansion. Let me explain to you how that little doozy works. In a legal definition, items appearing after the word includes or including, it says includes or including, and then there's items after that, those items collectively establish a classification. In other words, the definition is not like the English dictionary where you look it up and they're okay, that's what it means, and we're done. That is not how it works at all under this term of expansion. It creates a class of meaning, not a finite definition. Let me give you an example of that. Let's take a hypothetical statute. We'll call it uh, food. So let me read to you from this fictional statute, the definition of food. For the purpose of this chapter, the term food includes oranges, peaches, apricots, apples, and strawberries. So what was the classification, or in law it's called the class, what was the class established by the words that appeared after includes? Let me read that for you again. For the purpose of this chapter, the term food includes, now pay attention to what comes after, oranges, peaches, apricots, apples, and strawberries. So what is the class? The class is fruit, right? So in our fictional statute, food is defined by Congress as only fruit. You'll remember, however, that this is a term of expansion. How did this kind of definition, using includes or including, get that name, a term of expansion. I'm going to explain that to you right now. So in the original statute, the items appearing after the word includes were oranges, peaches, apricots, apples, and strawberries. But because the class is fruit, and this is a definition that involves a term of expansion, we can add things like grapes, pears, and cherries because they fit the class. So we can add them in. There's nothing wrong with that. The Supreme Court has said that's fine. We can add them in, even though they don't appear in the definition, because they fit in the established class. That is a term of expansion. Now, 
With my students, I encourage them to refer to this as a term of limited expansion. Now, the law industry just calls it a term of expansion, but I always encourage my students to call it a term of limited expansion because that's exactly what it is, right? It's limited to the class. When you tell somebody this is a term of expansion, they imagine they can throw anything they want in there. As an example, in our definition of uh, food, which actually is the class of fruit, could we add steak? No, we can't because it doesn't fit the established class. So it's not expansive generally, it's a term of limited expansion. Got it? With that quick lesson under our belt, let's take a look at a section in the tax code that actually employs a term of limited expansion. To do that, we're going to go to the statutes. We're going to go to 26 U.S.C. 3401C. Again, this is law.cornell.edu. You can look it up for yourself. Let's see what it says. It says, for the purpose of this chapter, the term employee includes, so we know it's a term of limitation, an officer, employee, or elected official of the United States, a state, or any political subdivision thereof, or the District of Columbia, or any agency or instrumentality of any one or more of the foregoing. Now remember, the class is established by the items listed after the word includes. So let's read that one more time and pay attention so you under, so you tell me what the class is. For the purpose of this chapter, the term employee includes an officer or employee or elected official of the United States, a state or a political subdivision thereof, or the District of Columbia or any agency or instrumentality of any one or, the, or more of the foregoing. So what's the class? various government workers, right? <laughs> so you will recall in the fictional definition of food where the established class was fruit, we could not add steak. So taking a look at the definition of employee, which is used in the statute for the purpose of payroll withholding, looking at the definition of employee, and the class is various government employees, can we read into that definition Private sector workers? Well, no, absolutely not, because there, there's not even, not even a hint of that in the class established by the items after the word includes. Isn't it fascinating that when you look at the law for yourself, it doesn't say or mean what other people told you it said, does it? Now let's look at people who work for themselves. They own their own business. Now, if you own your own business, uh, you have been asked to submit a Form W-9 to people who pay you time and again, right? So, yeah, let's see how the definitions affect that. The first thing we want to know is this thing, Form W-9. How does the Treasury Department classify that? And for that, all we have to do is go to 26 CFR, uh, Section 1.1471-1B148. Again, you can look that up at law.cornell.edu, and it reads as follows. The term withholding certificate means a Form W-8, Form W-9, or any other certificate that under the code, blah, 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 blah. Okay. <clears throat> the relevant words there being the term withholding certificate means a Form W-8, Form W-9, and then some other extraneous forms that don't matter for the purpose of this discussion. It may strike you as odd that the W-9 is classified as a withholding certificate, when you own your own business and people pay you, there is no withholding done, right? So follow along with me now. Various statutes and regs require certain people to submit a withholding certificate, such as a W-9, 
to a withholding agent. Hmm. So what is this mysterious withholding agent? For that, we just go back a little bit further in the regs. We go to section 1.1441-7a, which reads, the term withholding agent means any person, U.S. or foreign, that has the control, receipt, custody, disposal, or payment of any item of income of a foreign person. In case you thought you heard that wrong, let me repeat it. The term withholding agent means any person, U.S. or foreign, that has control, receipt, custody, disposal, or payment of any item of income of a foreign person. In other words, in the law, a withholding agent is a person who's handling U.S. source income that belongs to a foreign person. Remember that a Form W-9 is a form that certain people are required to furnish to the withholding agent when they receive a payment from that person. So, when you submit a Form W-9 to somebody who's paying you, you are attesting, under penalty of perjury no less, that you have determined that the person to whom you're giving the Form W-9 is a withholding agent, person who's handling U.S. source income belonging to a foreign person, and that the payment they're making to you belongs to a foreign person. So in your business, when you invoice a customer, is the payment that you get the property of a foreign person? I ask because in law, there's only one purpose for the W-9. We've talked about that. There's only one definition for withholding agent. We've talked about that. So when you take a form, says, when I give this to this guy, that make that I've determined that the income I'm receiving belongs to a foreign person, and he's a withholding agent. Because there's no other definition for withholding agent, there's no other classification for the Form W-9, and there's no other rule under statute or regulations that requires anybody to provide a W-9 except to a withholding agent who is then paying out income belonging to a foreign person. That is the only purpose for a W-9 in U.S. income tax law. I mentioned I was sharing these facts with you because I want to help you avoid the consequences of what's coming with those 87,000 new IRS employees. So let's switch gears away from the definitions in terms of limited expansion. Let's talk for a moment about Part 1100 of the Internal Revenue Manual. Part 1100 of the Internal Revenue Manual details the IRS's organization and staffing. It describes the services functional responsibilities, that's in quotes, that's their phrase, not mine, functional responsibilities, all the way from the office of the commissioner down the org chart. If it's a part of the IRS, there is a functional responsibility written out in Part 1100 of the Internal Revenue Manual. Uh, This is the functional responsibility description of the office of the assistant commissioner international. Now, before you say that's got nothing to do with me, just hang on, follow me along. Okay. Here it is. Quote, administers the internal revenue laws and related statutes as they relate to U.S. citizens residing abroad, corporations and businesses whose books and records are maintained outside the U.S., and non-resident aliens deriving income from sources within the United States. Close quote. So far, so good, right? That's exactly what you would expect from the guy who's in charge of things that are international, right? But here's the thing. As we go down, I'm going to share with you here in a minute. As we go down, we find that the IRS's examination division, collection division, 
and the Criminal Investigation Division are components within the Office of the Assistant Commissioner International. Here's the functional responsibility statement for the Examination Division. Quote, the Examination Division administers an international examination program involving the selection and examination of all types of federal tax returns filed with the Assistant Commissioner International. In case you were unaware, the Collection Division doesn't have a job until the Examination Division is done. The Examination Division looks at various things and then comes up and says, we say Joe Blow owes X. Only at that time does the file then go over to the Collection Division, and the Collection Division actually works on collecting that supposed taxes owed. But as we just discussed, the Examination Division is a component within the Office of the Assistant Commissioner International which only has authority over U.S. citizens residing abroad, corporations and businesses whose books and records are maintained outside the U.S. and non-resident aliens deriving income from sources within the United States. Here's the functional description for the collection division. Quote, executes the full range of collection activities on delinquent accounts, which includes securing delinquent returns involving taxpayers outside the United States and those in the United States territories, possessions, and in Puerto Rico, administers the program for mutual collection assistance under tax treaties. Did you hear anything in there about doing anything with citizens of the 50 states of the Union? And here's a statement of functional responsibilities for the Criminal Investigation Division. Quote, The Criminal Investigation Division enforces the criminal statutes applicable to income, estate, gift, employment, and excise tax laws involving United States citizens residing in foreign countries and non-resident aliens subject to federal income tax filing requirements. Close quote. And of course, that makes perfect sense because the Criminal Investigation Division is shown in Part 1100 of the Internal Revenue Manual as being within the Office of the Assistant Commissioner International, just like the Examination Division and the Collection Division. When I first read Part 1100 decades ago, I thought I was missing something. Part 1100 is pretty long. So after I read it the first time and I saw what I just shared with you, I figured I was missing something, so I read it again. Couldn't find what I was missing. So I read it as uh, what would be a third time. Still couldn't find what I imagined was missing. Now, I want to remind you, this goes from the office of the assistant commissioner all the way down to almost the guy who sweeps the floors. It's very comprehensive. So they didn't just leave something out. And what I was looking for, what I thought I had missed, I was reading through it, I must have just missed it, was the examination division, the collection division, and the criminal investigation division that deals with Americans living in the States of the Union, earning their own domestic source income. But that's not in there. There is only one examination division, one collection division, and one criminal investigation division, and they are part of the Assistant Commissioner International. Shifting gears to something else, uh, and again, Another tool that I'm hoping will help you in the end to avoid the consequences of these 87,000 new IRS employees. Do you remember when Charles Rosati was the commissioner, was appointed commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service? He served as the commissioner from 1997 through 2002. He had absolutely no background in accounting and taxes, in, in none of that. So why was he appointed commissioner? He was appointed commissioner because he was considered to be an expert at computer analytics, and he was appointed for the purpose of finding a way to modernize the IRS's ancient computer system. Now, they were ancient when he was appointed in 1997. But guess what never happened in Rosati's five years as the commissioner? 
the IRS's computer system was never updated. Those ancient computing systems were never replaced with modern enterprise-wide computer systems. Why? Because something as complex as the IRS would have had to have gone out to bid, and there would have been these large teams of private sector engineers who would have been working to develop the software necessary to run this new enterprise computing system. Now, in order to get all of that right, to have the software know what is right to do here and wrong to do there and so forth, and be functional to the true role of what the IRS does... The kind of things that you and I have discussed today would, and a lot more, a lot, lot, lot more, would have to have been revealed to those overseeing these large teams of software engineers, and the particulars would have had to been handed down to those large teams of software engineers. So those private sector software engineers would have been seeing things like the term employee for the purpose of payroll withholding, the classification is only various government workers, it has nothing to do with people in the private sector. It would have seen things that W-9 are actually withholding certificates that are only exclusively in U.S. tax law to be provided to a withholding agent. They then would have seen that withholding agents are only those who have care, custody, control, disposal, etc. of U.S. source income belonging to a foreign person and on and on and on. They knew it would have only been a matter of time until one or more of these engineers pulled a Snowden and brought the truth to the American media. And the government couldn't get out of it because it would have been the government's instructions that were given to the people who were running the software engineering teams and then handed down to the engineers so it could be done correctly. This would have been U.S. government documents being taken to the media. Consequently, Rosati did not do any significant upgrades to the IRS's computers. And to this very day, as I'm talking to you right now, the IRS is still limping along on these computer systems that were considered ancient in 1997. And that is why they cannot increase the quality or the workflow of what they do via technology, but instead they need 87,000 employees to do what they wouldn't need 87,000 employees to do if they could upgrade their computer system. Get it? The IRS likes to talk a lot about voluntary compliance. So let me ask you a question. If U.S. tax law requires foreign persons deriving U.S. source income to file and pay U.S. income tax because they have no unalienable right to actually earn any money here within the United States as foreigners, they don't have that right, do you expect them to file and pay voluntarily, i.e. voluntary compliance? Of course you do, as do I. It may surprise you to learn that every single Treasury order issued by the Treasury Department in the history of the income tax since 1913 that talks about who is to use a Form 1040 says the person who is to use a Form 1040 is a non-resident alien with U.S. source income. I hope you find that shocking. You should. I, by the way, I should say, again, from 1913 till this very moment when we're talking right here, there is no Treasury or zero or Treasury decision, statute, regulation, anything that says you or me just... Ordinary people in America earning a living are to file a 1040. There's not one, but there's nine or ten treasury orders specifying that the person who's to use a 1040 is a non-resident alien with U.S. source income. Interestingly, that dovetails perfectly with the Assistant Commissioner International, who within his office has the Examination Division and the Criminal Investigation Division. Are you detecting a theme? Perhaps. Just perhaps. Perhaps.
the income tax isn't what you've been told it is, doesn't apply to the people you've been told it does. But let's continue on. Since you're not a foreign person with U.S. source income, it may surprise you to know that, especially with large investors, oftentimes it's it's not a one-on-one relationship. In other words, a company in the United States does not immediately pay the foreign person that U.S. source income. A lot of times there's intermediaries in the middle. As an example, let's say a Brazilian investor. He sends money to a U.S. investment firm. Let's say he sends half a million dollars. And he says, I want you to invest this in Apple. So the investment firm on behalf of the foreign person, invests that money with Apple. Then it comes time, Apple pays the dividends, Apple shoots a check not to the Brazilian guy, Apple sends the check over to the investment firm. And of course, the investment firm gives Apple a Form W-9, and then Apple files a Form 1099 saying, hey man, we sent this money over to the investment firm. So in light of the fact that you already know what a W-9 is and you already know what purpose it serves, then let's go a step further. When Apple sends that 1099 to the IRS saying, hey, man, we sent this income over to the investment firm, what kind of income do you imagine that is? Yes, yes, if you said it is U.S. source income belonging to a foreign person, you would be right because the investment firm sends the W-9 over to Apple, meaning the investment firm has determined that Apple is a withholding agent, has care, control, custody, disposal, etc., of U.S. source income belonging to a foreign person. The investment firm knows that, so it sends the W-9 over, and then Apple sends a 1099 to the IRS saying, hey man, we sent U.S. source income over here to this investment firm. Now, your question might be, why? Why do we want that connection? Why does the IRS want to be able to trace U.S. source income as it goes from U.S. party to U.S. party before it goes to the foreign person? Uh, If somebody just paid the foreign investor, or let's say he cashed out and took a profit, and just sent the money to the guy in Brazil, what are the odds that the guy in Brazil sitting with the money in his bank in Brazil would pay income tax? Right, pretty slim. So the way this works is, as I phrase it in income tax, shattering the mist to keep it simple for people. I mean, I go through the whole law and technical part, but the simple language is U.S. tax law requires the last domestic guy with it to withhold the U.S. income tax. So the investment firm knows that it's got a foreign person invested in Apple. So it sends a W-9 over to Apple because it's telling Apple you don't need to withhold. Remember I said it might sound odd to you that the W-9 classified as a withholding certificate has nothing to do with withholding? Well, here you go. This clarifies this for you. The W-9 tells the IRS and Apple that Apple does not need to withhold because the money is going to yet another U.S. company before it goes to the Brazilian cat. So Apple does not need to withhold anything. That's where the withholding, that's why it's considered a withholding certificate. You wrap that all together in your head. And then Apple issues a 1099 concerning the investment firm so that the IRS can track it. Okay, Apple, you paid U.S. as a source income belonging to a foreign person to the investment firm. We know that. We now go talk to the investment firm if we have any question about where the tax is. And of course, in the scenario, there's only three parties, the the Brazilian investor, the investment firm, and Apple. So we know the investment firm is the last domestic guy with it. So before the investment firm sends the money offshore to the Brazilian, they have to withhold U.S. income tax. You thought it was all about you and you go to work and earn some money. You thought that's what the income tax was about. 
you thought that's what payroll withholding was about. You thought that's what the W-9 and 1099 were about. Really? Sorry, no. You believe that because people don't read the law for themselves. But Congress has never imposed the income tax on, again, people, American citizens living here, earning their own domestic source income, just going out and earning a living. Never. That's why these forms that we talked about have absolutely no applicability to you or me. I'll briefly mention that various people in Congress and the Treasury Department are telling the American people, and most especially the media, that really the bulk of these 87,000 new employees for the IRS is going to be going after people involved in crypto. Now, I don't know whether that's actually factual or not. Nevertheless, the rules of cryptocurrency and income tax is exactly what we just talked about during this presentation. The W-9 doesn't change its meaning because it's crypto. The 1099 doesn't change its meaning just because it's crypto. The income tax is still all about U.S. source income belonging to a foreign person and being moved offshore to that foreign person. That's what the income tax is about. I understand that I've covered a lot of material very rapidly today. Of course, this is a video and I don't want it to be hours and hours long, so I hope you understand why I have tried to give you some insights without spending hours and hours and hours detailing everything. Because I gave you bits of the larger story. I understand it's a lot like me handing you a flashlight, putting you in a dark warehouse and telling you to turn on the flashlight. You turn on the flashlight and you can see a small area of this very large warehouse and you cannot see the full picture. You can turn the flashlight on here or you can put it there or you can put it there, but you cannot ever see the entire warehouse because I only gave you a flashlight. Fortunately, you have the ability to flip the switch and turn on every single light in the warehouse and see and understand the entire issue with relative ease. All you have to do is go to drreality.news, drreality.news, and pick yourself up a copy of Income Tax Shattering the Miss. Now, I want to stress, because this may have sounded today, because I'm, again, trying to keep this short, may have sounded a little confusing, maybe even seemed a little intimidating. I, I want to let you know that Income Tax Shattering this is, is roughly 400 pages, but it is written in a way that every single American can understand. It is absolutely not going to be complex. It's not going to make you feel like perhaps this video did. It's going to all be crystal clear. And when you close that final page of income tax shattering the mist, you're going to know the truth. Now, to be clear, a couple of things are going to happen when you're reading income tax shattering the mist. First of all, you're going to be angry as hell because you're going to realize that the United States government has been committing the largest financial crime in the history of the world and the American people are its victims. Secondly, you will never, ever be able to trust the United States government pretty much about anything ever again. So understand that before you read it. However, we're looking at going into a future with 87,000 more IRS employees who are going to be going ag aggressively after people like you. So really, you have a choice. You can continue to be <clears throat> uninformed. You can just be the, the masses, the sheep. Or you can choose to get informed. Now, what you do when you get informed is up to you. I never presume to tell anybody what they should do once they know what the law really says, but I do absolutely 1000% want you to have the choice. If you read through this and you say, unbelievable, every word Dr. Champion told me is true. 
I have now seen the law laid out abundantly and clearly, and there is absolutely no question that every single penny the government has taken from me has been part of the largest financial crime in the history of the world. Once you know that, once you've seen the law, and it's super easy to understand how to change it. That's, that's the amazing thing. It's, you know, I, sometimes I've used the analogy that the truth is like somebody takes a diamond and sets it on the ground. And then a dump truck full of manure backs up and pours like 10 feet of manure on top of the diamond. It doesn't change what the diamond is. It just makes it a lot harder and uglier to get to the diamond. And that's what they've done with tax law. They've made it difficult and ugly to get to that diamond of truth. When you close the final page on income tax shattering the mission, one of the things you're going to say, amongst many, I suppose, is, wow. The scam has, is actually so incredibly simple. And once you understand how simple it is, you also understand how simple it is to walk away if you so choose. So I'm hoping that this has been of help to the non-sheep. And you go to drreality.news, grab yourself a copy of Income Tax Shattering the Mist. By the way, while you're there, please pick up a copy of Body Science. It will blow you away in the same sense that Income Tax Shattering the Mist has, just on a different issue. Human physiology with an emphasis on nutritional physiology. And just like Income Tax Shattering the Mist, it will, if you let it, change your life. Also, I've been doing these presentations for, gosh, almost 20 years now. They're always free, and I cover a wide range of issues that require certain technical skills and expertise. So if you value this sort of presentation and you want to not be the victims of the new 87,000 IRS employees, uh, by purchasing Income Tax Shattering the Mist, or Body Science, or both, you also help me to continue to be here for you. Thanks.